0: Well, good afternoon. I see that uh, somebody thought it was a good idea to give me tissues today. (laughs) I wonder if we'll need them. That'll be interesting, but uh, it's a thoughtful thing. Uh, Welcome back to all of you. Uh, Some of you maybe were here yesterday. Some of you were uh, at a different one. Um, For those of you who weren't here yesterday, my name is Mike Riccardi. I'm a professor of theology here at the Master's Seminary, and I've served for almost 11 years now. As the pastor of local outreach ministries at Grace Community Church, we oversee—I oversee—you know—two um, dozen different ways of, of uh, bringing the gospel to uh, places around, Lo- in and around Los Angeles. Uh, so it's been a delight to do that, and I suppose it's, it's related to serving in that capacity as a pastor of outreach and professor of evangelism uh, as well at the seminary. That the Dr. Beakey asked me to speak on this topic, the Puritans on. Evangelism. I I I don't at all feel qualified to be in the lineup. I uh, but praise God and I ask for His help to uh, to help us. Um, But as as we address the topic of Puritan evangelism this afternoon, I'm not going to be breaking any new ground. Uh, I don't mean to hold myself out as an expert on the Puritans or even on Puritan evangelism. As I said yesterday, I love the Puritans. I've benefited from the Puritans, but I'm no master of Puritan literature. I am a a fellow beneficiary of the Puritans along with you all. And uh, it does just so happen that uh, the person who's directed this conference, who's put it all on, has a small booklet on this topic that goes by the name of this very seminar, Puritan Evangelism. And so, uh, first in 1999, and then again in 2007, RHB published Dr. Beakey's book, And it really is a wonderful little introduction to the topic that I have been assigned uh, this afternoon, and so my method will be to borrow heavily from the structure and the content of that very work while also adding some selections from Packer's A Quest for Godliness... Uh, as well as several excerpts from the Puritans on the topic that have been particularly helpful to me. So I do want you to hear up front that uh, I am not, I'm not reading the booklet to you, but I I am digesting it in a way that makes it necessary to say that this is something of a seminar by Joel Beakey via Mike Riccardi. Um, And you'd you'd prefer to have him do this anyway. So let's pray. Ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we do come again in the name of of Christ, our mediator. Conscious uh, every moment of our need of His mediation, and after that uh, last session, just persuaded that it is ours, and just rejoicing in the wonderful gift that a uh, well grounded assurance is. Would you all? Would you increase all of our faith? Would you help our unbelief? And would you uh, grant those evidences of grace? That very work in the soul that we could look to, and, and not for anything about us, but to, to see the fingerprints of Your grace worked in uh, our souls as uh, testimonies to Your sovereignty, to Your kingship. Uh, we pray that You would you would accomplish that for Your glory, and we pray that You'd be with us now in the next hour. Uh, grant again that by Your Spirit that, that Your Word would be brought to bear through me, through Dr. Beakey, through the Puritans, uh, that you would instruct us about how we speak your glorious gospel to those who are lost. And we pray that you would give a, a heart of passion for the salvation of souls, and not not so that we might be glorified, but so that you would give your own name glory and magnify your sufficiency as Savior of even the worst sinners, of whom we all feel like we ourselves are our chief. And we ask for your, for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I do think it's fair to say that, the, that when the majority of the professing evangelical church thinks of the Puritans, if they even know who they are, they think of them as these sort of stodgy... Oh, yes? Oh, okay. Sorry. I was like, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a professor when I see a hand. I... Participation, you know, I'm like, hey... In any case, when people think of the Puritans, they think of them as these sort of stodgy doctrinaire academicians, and their portraits don't help, right? I mean, look at Owen up there. (laughs) Everybody's very, right? But, uh, you you know, here were a group of 17th century Englishmen who were much more concerned about crossing their doctrinal T's than actually entering the arena of Christian ministry and passionately proclaiming the gospel to the lost. I think that's the reputation that they get in large areas of the church but nothing could be further from the truth the puritans were exemplary there's somebody a couple of years ago put teeth on all of the puritan portraits it was great um <laughs> The the Puritans were exemplary in their evangelistic zeal and models of how a desire to see God glorified, Christ magnified, and sinners saved issued in a biblically faithful, doctrinally sound, and warmly practical evangelicalism. Now, it didn't... uh, I can go to there. Uh, It didn't necessarily issue in the kind of evangelistic programs that we think of today in our post-Christian culture, especially in certain areas like Los Angeles. We recognize that only a fraction of the population are going to attend church. Uh, But in the Puritans' day, virtually everyone in a particular town went to church, and so the local church was very self-consciously mixed with believers and unbelievers. And so one of the hallmarks of, Puritans, uh, the, of the Puritans' ministry was that the weekly preaching had to address both believers and unbelievers. Not only would pastors apply their texts unto the edification and sanctification of the children of God, but they would also take care to apply them unto the conversion of the lost who sat in their pews, which meant a consistent call to repent and believe the gospel. And so the local church was the context of, uh, for much of the Puritans' evangelism. And so Packer spoke this way of Puritan preaching. He said, "...the Puritans did not regard evangelistic sermons as a special class of sermons, having their own peculiar style and conventions. The Puritan position was rather that since all Scripture bears witness to Christ... Well, I probably don't have that going. The Puritan position was that rather that all since all scripture bears witness to Christ, and all sermons should aim to expound and apply what is in the Bible, all proper sermons would of necessity declare Christ and so to be and so be to some extent evangelistic. And I think even here, at the outset, is a good place for us to learn a lesson from the Puritans. All scripture bears witness to Christ. And all sermons should aim to expound and apply what is in the Bible. And so even though entire towns don't make it a priority to uh, attend church in a way that the, the Puritans' day, those in the Puritans' day did, nevertheless, there are both believers and unbelievers in your churches. And so faithful, expository preaching will have the gospel in every sermon. Simply because the call to saving repentance and faith in Christ is the application of the Scriptures to those who have not yet begun following Jesus. Every text speaks about a characteristic of God, an attribute of God, or an attribute of man that tells us who we are, or speaks about the salvation that sinners are to have in Christ, and, and calls for some sort of response of faithfulness, and, I mean, be anxious for nothing right that in every but in everything by prayer and petition make your requests known to god and the peace of god which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in christ jesus that's a, if that's your text for sunday morning what are you preaching you're preaching to the believers in jesus to not be anxious but then what do you preach to the unbeliever who's there well that such peace guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus alone. And so even with that call to duty, with that reminder of what we are to do to be faithful, be anxious for nothing, but make your request known, there is an implicit application to the unbeliever to say, you can't obey this text that I've just urged upon the entire congregation. Why? Because this is known only in Christ Jesus. And friend, you are outside of Christ this morning right? And so everything ought to be, we ought to take that lesson, even though not the whole town is in our church, there are believers and unbelievers there, whether they're little unbelievers who, you know, are just in your families and are not yet saved, whether they are uh, folks that wander in or whether they're friends who were invited, somebody there, if it's somebody who believes they're a Christian and they're not, right? Somebody who's falsely assured themselves of salvation, The, the gospel needs to be preached in every sermon. Now, that, that doesn't mean that every sermon needs to be sort of a, a Billy Graham revival uh, message, you know, that where we're constantly, the, where, where church just totally takes on the, uh, the, the face of, please be saved. No, the, the church gathers to worship Christ, to edify the saints, and then, of course, it scatters to evangelize. Nevertheless, there should be an accent in our preaching which calls the unrepentant to faith. And if you were to survey the, uh, where am I at here? Sorry, I you know, presenter mode helps me, but I don't have presenter mode. Okay, um, and if you were to survey primary source material of Puritan evangelistic preaching, I think you'd be struck by the earnestness, the urgency, the persuasion, and the systematic elimination of all excuses for persisting in unbelief. I think you'd be struck by the amount of second-person and direct address to the conscience of the listener. You know, sometimes we as preachers can, especially as expository preachers, can get into what Steve Lawson calls the indicative rut. Right? The indicative is the mood that states fact. And so uh, he has a very memorable part of his uh, seminary lectures where he talks statement of, fact, statement, of fact, statement 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 of fact, and he goes on like that. And and it's true. That's what a sermon can be. It's very third person. It's very just. Let me tell you about the text, and it never moves to, now, believer, let me speak to you. Unbeliever, let me press this on your conscience. There's so much of that, second-person direct address in Puritan preaching. I also think you'd be struck by the vividness of the word pictures, Uh, The sobriety of the threats of the law and the horrors of deserved punishment, and at the same time, the loveliness of Christ and the sweetness of the forgiveness offered in the gospel. But then more than just the the ministry of preaching, uh, Puritan evangelism also took the form of counseling and personal catechesis. So we'll talk about this a little bit more later, but Puritan pastoral ministry was not limited to the pulpit, not by a long shot. Uh, nor was it simply meeting with believers for counseling and encouragement. No, a a good deal of Puritan evangelism happened in personal visitation and one-on-one meetings with each family, where ministers like Richard Baxter would catechize each congregant. And and as the pastor would suspect that a member wasn't a believer, he would exhort them uh, to repent of their sins and trust in Christ. Um, And oftentimes the case was doubtful both for the pastor and the congregant. I'm not sure you're saved. I'm not sure I'm saved either. And so the issue of assurance was paramount in Puritan evangelism. So if you had some who were in the category of Dr. Beakey's lecture uh, earlier, where he was saying that there was false false assurance when you shouldn't have it, and then there was uh, questions about assurance, that would be a a context, a, a theater for Puritan evangelism. It was the pastor's duty to help a church member discern whether he was indeed a true Christian or a false convert. And if there's a word of application there, it's when you have a pastor over, or if you are a pastor or a minister, an elder, uh, that really ought to be the business of your conversation. It's wonderful to hear about how the family's doing. It's, it's wonderful to hear about the, the different vacations that you've just taken and whatever. But really, the the, the, the topic of conversation among Christians ought to be about the state of your soul ought to be about the, the the satisfying nature of your communion with Christ, your study of the Word. What's He teaching you? What of His face is He revealing to you? And if you're just entirely a fish out of water in those conversations, you want your pastor to say, why, why, is, there, why is there no receptor site in your heart for these kinds of questions? And that's where evangelism eventually begins to take place. So Beeky summarizes... The expression Puritan evangelism refers to how the Puritans proclaimed what God's Word counsels regarding the salvation of sinners from sin and its consequences. And then Thomas Manton gives us an example of the Puritan conception of the gospel in one of his sermons. The sum of the gospel is this, that all who by true true repentance and faith do forsake the flesh, the world, and the devil... And give themselves up to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as their Creator, Redeemer, and Sanctifier shall find God as a Father, taking them for His reconciled children, and for Christ's sake, pardoning their sin, and by His Spirit, giving them His grace. And if they persevere in this course, will finally glorify them and bestow upon them everlasting happiness, but will condemn the unbelievers, impenitent and ungodly, to everlasting punishment." And as far as reading on Puritan evangelism, I I, I do recommend these two that I mentioned to you already before, uh, Puritan evangelism, Quest for Godliness. Um, In Quest for Godliness specifically, chapters uh, 10, 17, and 18 are going to be chapters that relate to uh, this topic. Do get that that volume if you don't have it. It's a fantastic little work, I mean, big work, uh, 300 plus pages, I suppose. But it's really, really an excellent uh, introduction to the Puritans. Uh, Beakey in, in that booklet does give a list of secondary sources. These are on page two and footnote three. Uh, Packer is among them, but in addition to him, Beakey lists uh, Sidney Roy, Johannes v- vandenberg there 's uh, works from Alden Vaughn, R. Pierce beaver, Charles Cheney, and so on. like I say, you can get that that list in beaky 's uh, Book, and then key primary sources that uh, are always mentioned when you talk about pure and evangelism are Joseph Allen's "An Alarm to the Unconverted," which is published now under the title "A Sure Guide to Heaven," because "An Alarm to the Unconverted" was you know quite the quite the title, and uh, and so they yeah. They, they print it as a sure guide to heaven. You can get that as one of the Puritan paperbacks. There is uh, Baxter's A Call to the Unconverted, which again is, is often referred to in uh, in discussions of Puritan evangelism, as well as Matthew Mead's The Almost Christian Discovered. That's down there, or at least was in the bookstore um, on, on that. Uh, as you enter the bookstore, it's on that back side or the front side, you could say, of the Reformation heritage table. So many of these were just long sermons or series of sermons that were printed as books and booklets. And uh, the same is true for what is perhaps the most famous sermon in the post-apostolic era, Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Some people debate whether to include Edwards as one of the Puritans. He's often referred to as the last of the Puritans. Um, that sermon is an example of Puritan evangelism. And uh, then the best way to read the primary sources on the Puritan evangelists or on Puritan evangelism is to just read a whole lot of Puritan sermons. Uh, one of the richest and most rewarding books, really, that I've ever read is John Flavel's Fountain of Life. You you found that out if you were here yesterday. Um, volume one uh, of his six volumes in uh, printed by Banner of Truth. And of course, if you don't want to buy the paper copy, it's free. All this stuff is free online. The Puritans wrote stuff long enough ago that everything's in the public domain. So a lot you can get a, a free PDF of that on Monergism.com. Uh, but that book, Fountain of Life, is a collection of 42 sermons on the person and work of Christ, which Flavel preached methodically, almost like you'd give a systematic theology class. Um, and they are absolutely gold. And because they're sermons, they're a good representative of how the Puritans would address their own congregations. And these sermons are are just chock full of evangelistic gems. Uh, couldn't recommend it highly enough. But uh, the any of them, any of the Puritan sermons, are going, you're going to find examples of Puritan evangelism because they understood that they were to apply the text to believer and unbeliever among them. Well, in the rest of our time, I want to work through Dr. Beaky's outline in this book uh, while adding some comments and quotes to illustrate the points. Three parts, the characteristic of Puritan preaching, characteristics, plural, of Puritan preaching, the method of Puritan evangelism, and the inward disposition Of the Puritan evangelist, and under the under the characteristics of preaching, uh, he writes uh, he 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 gives five characteristics uh, that it is thoroughly biblical, unashamedly doctrinal, experimentally practical, holistically evangelistic, and studiously symmetrical. So let's work through some of these here. First, thoroughly biblical. Owen says, the first and principal duty of a pastor is to feed the flock by the diligent preaching of the Word. Evangelism and Puritan preaching is thoroughly rooted in the biblical text. The typical page of a Puritan evangelistic sermon contains five to ten citations of biblical texts and maybe a dozen references to others, and you can see an example there of Joseph Allen's book, The Alarm to the Unconverted, or A Sure Guide to Heaven. And there are, I don't know, count them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, on uh, a few, par- not even a paragraph and a half. Um, and so that's what the kind of thing that you're going to be dealing with as you uh, read this. They're thoroughly biblical because they understood, right? They understood that the, wor- the Word of God is the instrument of regeneration. Right, that the only way that people sinners are going to be converted is through the living and enduring Word of God. If regeneration happens through another means, use that other means. But it doesn't. It comes through the Word, and therefore, uh, the, the the Puritan evangelism is thoroughly rooted in uh, the biblical text. Beeky laments in, the, in his book on this. He says, "...the evangelistic sermons of contemporary preachers often incorporate verses wrested out of context or a string of texts that don't belong together. Modern evangelism, in quest of a simple gospel, favors a mere formula, a packaged presentation, instead of the whole counsel of God." And, and you, you know about that, right? Four spiritual laws, five things God wants you to know. These sorts of, you know, let, let me walk through my script... As opposed to, let me let me read the Bible and pull out what God's own Word says, both to the believing and to the unbelieving. Second, it's unashamedly doctrinal. I do want to camp here for a little while, but um, the uh, the Puritan evangelist saw theology as a, as an essentially practical discipline. Perkins called it the science of living blessedly forever. Uh, Ames says the doctrine or teaching that that. Theology is the doctrine or teaching of living unto God. So, uh, Ferguson says, to them, systematic theology was, was to the pastor what a knowledge of anatomy is to the physician. Only in light of the whole body of divinity, as they like to call it, could a minister provide a diagnosis of, prescribe for, and ultimately cure spiritual disease in those who were plagued by the body of sin and death. And so they say they did not conciliate, Beeky says, they did not conciliate their hearers by lightening up their messages with humorous stories or folksy anecdotes. They felt the awesome responsibility of handling eternal truth and addressing immortal souls. You're never going to look at a a Puritan, read a Puritan sermon and say, so I was at the supermarket the other day, you know? (laughs) there there isn't there isn 't anything in there that seeks to inject some sort of levity Now we do that maybe in lectures and things like that seminars but the the preaching of the Word of God is is a, a, an immensely serious moment and one of the the better things you 'll read on on that is is john piper 's stuff on gravity and gladness, the supremacy of God in preaching i think it 's reprinted in in uh, expository exaltation but there's this idea that that levity is the enemy to true worship because god is anything but light right god's essence is equated with his glory kavod which means weightiness right and so the minister ought not to project that divine things are some sort of light some you know airy we laughed we cried and we all went home you know that's not preaching that's not church and what what was there what was there uh, do, what were their doctrinal foundations? Well, there was the the doctrines of God, the doctrines of the doctrine of sin, and the doctrine of Christ. So, what did they do? They proclaimed God's majestic being, His Trinitarian personality, and His glorious attributes. Says Beaky Charnock. Uh, was that Baxter? Charnock. Oh, yeah, that is Baxter. Sorry, I'm going to be doing this because I thought that I was going to have my laptop, and in presenter view, you can see the next slide. Bear with me, um, but. Charnock is obviously the gold standard when it comes to the attributes of God, right, is, uh, is the existence and attribute attributes of God by uh, Stephen Charnock. The two volumes in his works from Banner of Truth just recently, a new version of it uh, comes from Crossway. Uh, the, the, this is the meat and the drink of the Puritans. This is what they, they feasted upon. So Baxter speaks about God in, in the Saints Everlasting Rest, which is an evangelistic type of work. He says, if he be good and infinitely good, there is all the reason in the world that you should love him, and there is no show of reason that you should love the world or sin before him. If he be faithful and true, his threatenings must be feared, and his promises must not be distrusted, and there is no reason that you should make any question of his word. If he be holy, then he must be an enemy to sin and to all that are unholy, because they are contrary to his nature." Consider that He is almighty and that there is no resisting Him. In the blink of an eye, He can snatch your body, your, your guilty soul from your body. A word of His mouth can set all the world against you and set your own conscience against you too. And if he, be your, if he be your enemy, it does not matter who is your friend, for all the world cannot save you if He condemns you. He was from eternity, and you are... I'll just read it. "...and thou art but as it were of yesterday." Thy being is from him. Thy life is always in his hands. Thou canst not live an hour without him. Thou canst not fetch a breath without him, nor think a thought, nor speak a word, nor stir a foot or hand without him. No love can be great enough. No praises can be high enough, and no service can be holy and good enough for such a God. This is not a God to be neglected or dallied with, nor a God to be resisted or provoked by the willful breaking of his laws. And so you see how rooted in a biblical theism pure in evangelism was. Who is this God with whom we have to do? Given that He is the way that He is, what does that say about remaining in a state of unbelief? If He's all-powerful, can you resist His power? That kind of reasoning with with, uh, the congregation is something that I feel like is is totally lost almost totally lost today where where the preacher sort of anticipates the objections and the moves of the sinful conscience which wants to be free from the arrows of piercing application and 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 anticipates that and says how 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 is the, the the sinful heart of my people are going to try to avoid the benefit of biblical correction. Well, well then how can I study them in their seat and, and direct it directly at the heart? And that kind of thing that Baxter was doing there, is he good? Is he powerful? Is he holy? That is quintessential of a Puritan evangelistic doctrine of God. And Packer says the irony of our situation is that if we spend time preaching to modern pagans about the character of God, we will be told that we're not preaching the gospel. But, but the Puritans wouldn't tell us that, nor would Paul, right? Well, stop, stop preaching to me about the character of God. I can't appreciate that. The unbelievers can't appreciate that until they're saved. Well, they need to know about the character of this God by whom and unto whom they will be saved. The Puritans understood that the doctrines of atonement and justification and reconciliation are meaningless apart from a true understanding of God. God, who condemns sin, atones for sinners, justifies them, and reconciles them to Himself. Salvation is wonderful, but the Savior is the one who saves by that salvation, and so He needs to be preached. Then there's the doctrine of sin. And, you know, sin is what? It is is moral rebellion against God, um, we we don't the Puritans didn't talk about our mistakes or our foibles or our shortcomings right they talked about sin they talked about missing the mark they talked about the the moral rebellion against God that reaps eternal guilt and so uh, Packer says they sought to expose the sinfulness that underlies sins. We talked so much yesterday about the sinfulness of sin and convince men of their own utter corruption and inability to improve themselves in God's sight. This, they held, was a vital part of the work of a gospel preacher, for the index of the soundness of a man's faith in Christ is the genuineness of the self-despair from which it springs. That's an interesting comment. Do you know yourself so sinful that you despair of saving yourself and casting yourself upon a God who saves you? But they're, uh, you know, all, all about sin in these messages, sins of omission and commission, sins in thought, word, and deed. They spoke of the heinousness uh, of sin. Like I said yesterday, those four men, Samuel Bolton, Jeremiah Burroughs, Edward Reynolds, and Ralph Venning, all wrote books with the title, The Sinfulness of Sin. There's the need for regeneration rather than outward reformation. Uh, You know, this is not just moral improvement. Spurgeon has a great line. He says, the Scripture does not say, ye must be improved, but ye must be born again. And uh, then there's the horrific eternal punishment for sin. And they preached much uh, of that. Um, Ralph Venning says, God has set you a day, and that is today. While it is called today, hear his voice and harden not your hearts. When this day of patience is over, if you are still found unprovided, woe unto you, for you are undone forever. I pray you, think of it. You see, that that would have been enough. That would have been enough. Ooh, okay, let me think. No, no, no. I pray you, think of it. Have you not grieved God enough yet? Nor wronged your own soul enough yet. Are you too? Are you afraid of being happy too soon? Is the way he reasons, or of going to hell too easily and cheaply, that you will not repent, or that you delay it? If in this your day you do not consider the things of your peace, you may, have, you may have them hidden from your eyes and go blindfolded to hell and be damned forever. And then God will require a to the utmost farthing. He will, pay, he will be paid all that he is due for, for time, for talents, for means, for mercies, for patience and forbearance. He will be paid for all. And listen to this line. If he is not glorified by you now, he will glor- be glorified upon you then so i can't i can't preach that to my congregation nobody will come back <laughs> let them go let them go that's preaching brooks says oh sirs like i told you yesterday oh sirs always a good mark you know something good from brooks is coming when it's oh sirs <laughs> oh sirs or oh souls that you would judge that that you would judge that only worth much now, which will be found of much worth at last, when you shall lie upon a dying bed and stand before a judgment seat. Think with eternity in mind. Don't think about things that the world esteems now. Think about what the value of things are when you lie upon a dying bed, when you come to judgment. Flavel says, hear me, you that labor for the world as if heaven were in it. What will you do at death? Uh, what will you do when at death you shall look back over your shoulder and see what you have spent your time and strength for shrinking and vanishing away from you? When you shall look forward and see vast eternity opening its mouth to swallow you up? Oh, then what would you give for a well-grounded assurance of an eternal inheritance? I want to hear preaching like that. I do. Flavel says again, "Those that continue Christless now will be left speechless." Then, God forbid that you have heard so much of Christ, and you that have professed so much of Christ should at last fall into a worse condition than those that never heard the name of Christ. He's pr- pressing on the reality that of to whom much is given, much will be required. That the one who the servant who knew his master's will and didn't do it is beaten with more blows than the one who didn't know his master's will and didn't do it, Luke 12. Flavel says, the world, this is the very end of the fountain of life, as he's urging the consideration uh, upon everything that's been said before. He says, the world affords not a sadder sight than a poor Christless soul shivering on the brink of eternity. Can Can we incorporate something of that tenor in our conversations with our unbelieving family and friends? Can they see, you, you almost imagine Flavel crying as he writes that, you know, the world affords not a sadder sight, he's sad. Can we communicate that to our friends and family, that we are sad to think that you might be a poor, Christless soul shivering on the brink of eternity? And then he says again, consider with thyself, man. How can you imagine that you can support that infinite wrath that Christ grappled with in the room of God's elect? Think about the the punishment of eternity. He had the strength of a deity to support him, Isaiah 42. He had the fullness of his spirit to prepare him. He had the ministry of an angel who came post from heaven to relieve him in his agony. He had the ear of his father to hear him. He cried and he was heard that he was feared. Hebrews 5, 7. He was assured of the victory before the combat. He knew he should be justified. And yet for all this, the text says, he was sore amazed and sorrowful even to death. And his heart was melted like wax in the midst of his bowels. Now, if the case stood thus with Christ... Notwithstanding all these advantages, he had to bear the wrath of God for a little time. How do you think a poor worm as you are to dwell with everlasting burnings or contend with devouring fire? I beseech you by the mercies of God, by all the regard and love you have to your own soul. Neglect not time, but make quick and sure work of it. Get an interest in this sacrifice quickly. What else will be thy state when vast eternity opens up to swallow you? What will you do, man, when your eye strings and heart strings are breaking? Oh, what a fearful shriek your conscience will give when you're presented before the dreadful God and no Christ to screen you from his indignation. And then... We, we have to go to sinners in the hands. Edwards says, There are a great many in Christian countries who go along all their lifetime toward an eternity and never believe they're going to eternity before they come to die. In their health, they have thought there was no world to come, no such thing as hell, have thought that it was nothing but a mere fiction invented to frighten folk. But when they lay a dying, they have been as fully convinced of a hell as if they were actually in it. You see... The de- death has a way of sobering everybody up. It has a way of taking, stripping away all their fancies and fictions that they create in their own mind, these fairy tales, that there could be no ultimate justice, right? That there, there's no way that, 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 that the Christianity stuff is true, right? We're, we're just, you know, there's no daddy in the sky, things like that. And then they face their death and they're quiet because the reality of judgment presses in on their conscience, if God is gracious uh, in, that, in those moments. And Edwards is pleading with his congregation. Some of you here, you don't think about hell. You don't, you don't believe in hell. But let me tell you something, you know who believes in hell? Those who are on their deathbeds. And you're fine and well now, but you think about then, will you dance upon the brink of destruction? Edwards says, almost every natural man that hears of hell flatters himself that he shall escape it. What did we hear? right? What was it like? 80-something percent and then 4%. 80% think there's a hell, 4% think they're going there. Every natural man hears of hell, flatters himself that he shall escape it. He depends upon himself for his own security. If it were so that we could come to speak with those in hell and could inquire of them one by one, whether they expected when alive and when they used to hear about hell ever to be the subjects of that misery, we doubtless should hear one and another reply, no, I never intended to come here. I had laid out matters otherwise in my mind. I thought I should contrive well for myself. I thought my scheme good. I intended to take effectual care, but it came upon me unexpected. I didn't look for it at that time and in that manner. It came as a thief. Death outwitted me. God's wrath was too quick for me. Oh, my cursed foolishness, I was flattering myself and pleasing myself with vain dreams of what I would do hereafter. And when I was saying peace and safety, sudden destruction came upon me. What he's doing, he's stripping away all of the excuses. He's, he's showing you that, there, that there's, you might feel assured and safe now, but if we could talk to the people in hell, pastors, preachers, give voice to those suffering in hell this very moment, and let their testimony witness to those who are living. And then people, those who listen to preaching, pray for this kind of preaching, encourage your pastor when there's this kind of preaching, and as you speak to unbelievers, don't spare it. I mean, I'm not saying you have to sit somebody down in your living room and just go full Edwards, right? <laughs> but, but there's just there's, there's almost this, the smell of sulfur right? The heat of flames about your demeanor as you talk about these things. You know, plenty of people thought that they were going to escape hell, friend. Plenty of people did. In fact, if you could talk with people in hell right now, I bet you could interview every one of them, right? You can, you can speak about this way, uh, about this in a very uh, natural sort of colloquial way. Edward says, look, it would be dreadful to suffer this fierceness and wrath of Almighty God one moment. But you must suffer it to all eternity. There will be no end to this exquisite, horrible misery. When you look forward, you shall see a long forever, a boundless duration before you, which will swallow up your thoughts and amaze your soul. And you will absolutely despair of ever having any deliverance, any end, any mitigation, any rest at all. You will know certainly that you must wear out long ages, millions of millions of ages in wrestling and conflicting with this almighty, merciless vengeance. And then, when you have so done, when so many ages have actually been spent by you in this manner, you will know that all is but a point to what remains. It's just—it's the most undoing notion of punishment and that, that it's eternal punishment. The saints cry out, How long, O Lord? And the answer always comes back in one form or another, just a little while more. The unredeemed, the finally impenitent cry out, how long, O Lord? And the answer is forever, with no end. And when you think about millions and millions of years of agonizing suffering, and then you stop to think, okay, I'm closer to the end. No, you're not. That's the tyranny of hell, is that you're no closer to the end Than when you began. The Puritans gave their people a sense of that. Not to to scare them, not to just sort of frighten them, but to give them a genuine sense of what they were dallying with. This is not a God to be trifled with. Infinite holiness is not a God to be trifled with. And then, in addition to the doctrine of God, doctrine of sin, there's the doctrine of Christ. Sibbs said, preaching is the chariot that carries Christ up and down the world. And so they thought of all preaching as the vehicle for Christ, delivering Christ to people. And if you wanted uh, resources on, the, on preaching about Christ, I mean, again, it's almost everything, but especially Goodwin's Christ Our Mediator. Uh, Isaac Ambrose should be Ambrose with a B, uh, looking unto Jesus. Uh, Owen, volume one, The Person of Christ and the Glory of Christ Uh, Flavel, the fountain of life. And so, um, one of the things that Beaky uh, highlights in his book that I think are just really excellent is that he says, they offered Christ as prophet, priest, and king. They did not separate his benefits from his person or offer him as a savior from sin while ignoring his claims as Lord. He is the prophet who teaches. He is the, the priest who dies and makes atonement but he's also the king who is to be obeyed and to say that you could have Christ as savior and not Lord would be to say Christ could be your priest, but not your king. And they pressed this hard. And so the Lordship of Christ was a key aspect of Puritan evangelism. Oh, there it is. That's, that's the quote. Um, (laughs) But here's how Joseph Allen did that. Uh, he, He says, uh, All of Christ is accepted by the sincere convert. He loves not only the wages, but the work of Christ, not only the benefits, but the burden of Christ. He is willing not only to tread out the corn, but to draw under the yoke. He takes up the commands of Christ, yea, the cross of Christ. The unsound convert takes Christ by halves. He is all for the salvation, but not for sanctification. He is for the privileges, but does not appropriate the person of Christ. He divides the offices and the benefits of Christ. This is an error in the foundation. Whoever loves life, let him beware here. It is an undoing mistake. It is an undoing mistake of which you have been often warned, and yet none is more common. So you see what he's saying? You might think that you're a Christian because you've received the benefits of Christ, at least you think you have. You've mentally assented to, yes, I want to be a Christian, but you've not taken up the yoke, You've not, which is easy. You've not put on the burden, which is light but it's there nonetheless, right? And so this is part of Puritan evangelism, was reasoning with professing Christians who might have said, I, I want Christ as Savior, but who were not at all uh, following after him as Lord. Uh, Benning says, you are to receive a whole Christ. Oh, sorry. Not only Jesus, but Lord, not only Savior, but Prince You need to be as willing to die to sin as he was to die for sin, and as willing to live to him as he was to die for you. Be as willing to be his, to serve him, that he should be yours to save you. Take him on his own terms. Give give up yourself wholly to him. Beeky says the Puritans would stand aghast at the present trend in modern evangelism, which seeks merely to rescue sinners from hell, postponing their submission to the sovereign lordship of Christ until later. So the Puritans would have liked the gospel according to Jesus by John MacArthur. <laughs> then there was the, the free offer of the gospel. There was an emphasis on, on the free offer. And uh, Robert Trail says, two things ministers have to do. This is, this is our job, to set him forth to people, to paint him in his love, excellency, and ability to save, and two, to offer him unto them freely, fully, without any limitation, as to sinners or their sinful state. You come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Robert Bolton uh, says, Jesus Christ is offered most freely and without exception of any person, every Sabbath, every sermon. So there. This is this notion that, and there's more that I could get into here um, that I don't want to get bogged down into. But there, there's the question of, you know, how is it that you can have a particular redemption, which of course the Puritans believed in, the fact that Christ has died for the elect alone and not for all without exception, and yet a universal gospel call, a free offer of the gospel on God's part and not just the minister's part. In the, the proclamation of the Gospel, well, the, the very best of the Puritan tradition saw absolutely no contradiction in this, and they explained why, and I could take you know a couple hours to explain to you why but the this is actually like a particular area of my own research interest, but so i 'm fighting with myself to just shut up and move on <laughs> but let it be testimony let it be testimony that the highest of high Calvinists like William Perkins. And John Owen, who rigorously and vigorously defended the doctrine of particular redemption, also spoke wonderfully uh, of the Christ held out to all sinners and offered the gospel freely. Here are a couple of examples of that. Perkins says, the ministers of the gospel ought indifferently to exhort all and everyone to repent. I mean, it doesn't get clearer than that. And then here's an example of Owen doing it. He says, consider the infinite condescension and love of Christ in his invitations and calls of you to come unto him for life. Second person again, right? For life, deliverance, mercy, grace, peace, and eternal salvation. Multitudes of these invitations and calls are recorded in the scripture, and they are all of them filled up with those blessed encouragements which divine wisdom knows to be suited unto lost, convinced sinners. In the declaration and preaching of them, Jesus Christ yet stands before sinners, calling, inviting, encouraging them to come unto Him. This is something of the word which He now speaks unto you. Here it is. Why will you die? Why will you perish? Why will you not have compassion on your own souls? Can your hearts endure or can your hands be strong in the day of wrath approaching? Look unto me and be saved. Come unto me and I will ease you of all sins, sorrows, fears, burdens, and give rest unto your souls. Come, I entreat you, lay aside all procrastinations, all delays. Put me off no more. Eternity lies at the door. Do not so hate me as that you would rather perish than accept of deliverance by me. These and the like things does the Lord Christ continually declare, proclaim, plead, and urge upon the souls of sinners he does it in the preaching of the word, of the word as if he were present with you right? Am I, am I still in the same spot? Yep. As if He were present with you. So now he's saying it's as if, God, as if Christ is here saying to every one of you, come to me. He says, and he's, as if he spake personally to every one of you. He has appointed the ministers of the gospel to appear before you and to deal with you in his stead, avowing as his own the invitations which are given you in his name. And so when I call you to faith, it's as if Christ is calling you to faith. That's the guy who wrote the death of death and the death of Christ, That's the guy who wrote a display of Arminianism, who really, really did not like a doctrine of universal atonement, and he has an exquisite doctrine of a universal offer. So how do those two mix? Come talk to me afterwards. (laughs) And then, unto the magnification of Christ, and here's where I want to spend a lot of time too, and I'm realizing how I'm not going to get through everything. That's all right. Um... Packer says, all of us who preach the gospel, I suppose, desire men's conversion. Many, no doubt, are concerned also to glorify God by a faithful declaration of his truth. But how many, when preaching the gospel, are consumed by the longing to magnify Christ, to extol the richness and freedom and glory of his grace and the perfection of his saving work? The cheap and perfunctory way in which the person of the Savior is sometimes dealt with in modern evangelistic preaching forces this question upon us. Puritan gospel preaching was concerned, above all, to honor Christ, to show his glory to needy men and women. It is much to be wished that we who preach the gospel in these days might recover the same overmastering concern to exalt this mighty Savior. And so we. We read yesterday, I think this one in Flavel, oh, what a melting consideration is this, that out of his agony comes our victory, out of his condemnation, our justification, out of his pain, our ease, out of his stripes, our healing, out of his gall and vinegar, our honey, out of his curse, our blessing, out of his crown of thorns, our crown of glory, out of his death, our life. If he could not be released, it was that you might If Pilate gave sentence against him, it was that the great God might never give sentence against you. If he yielded that it should be with Christ as they require, it was that it might be with our souls as well as we can desire. And therefore, thanks be to God. For his unspeakable gift, Flavel often ended his sermons with that quote of 2 Corinthians nine fifteen, and thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. You see what he's doing there. He's he's just magnifying the worth of Christ, the the work of Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, and 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 if he suffered, and if you and if your your bowels yearn after the suffering of Christ, going to an undeserved death, the way that he he had. Well, let that same yearning make you recognize that he did that so that you wouldn't have to. And therefore, don't spoil that. Make use of it. Come and repent and lay hold of Christ. Flavel says, oh, it is sweet at all times, especially at such a time, to see the reconciled face of God through Jesus Christ and hear the voice of peace through the blood of his cross unashamedly doctrinal, you know, doctrine of the lordship, doctrine of the free offer, and the doctrine of the magnification of Christ. And did you know there's this this line um, there about the blood of the cross, and two paragraphs later is one of the, the quotes that we read yesterday, where he says, oh, what a fearful shriek will your conscience give when you're presented before the dreadful God. I actually quoted it just a few minutes ago. So, Oh, it is sweet at all times to see the reconciled face of God, but oh, what a dreadful shriek will your conscience give when you're presented before God without a mediator. We need that. We need the both of those, right, in our preaching today. To the unbeliever, a frightening consideration of the hour of your judgment. To the believer, a steadying consideration of justice satisfied in the blood of your substitute. And then... Beakey talks about how the Puritan preaching was experimentally practical, experimentum, the Latin, to put to the test or by knowing by experience. You can read in an encyclopedia that honey is sweet, or you can taste honey. Those are two different kinds of knowledge, right? And they were saying, I don't want to instill a knowledge of Christ. I don't want my congregation to be um, content with a, a, a knowledge, a head knowledge that Christ is sweet, that Christ is glorious, that he's trustworthy, that he can save me if I trust in him. I want them to know from experience. I want them to be able to have tasted Christ's sufficiency because they have rested all of their souls upon him and trusted him alone for their righteousness. And so preaching aimed at that notion, you can know a lot of things and you still might yet need to be converted, but to know Christ in this way, right, is to know him experimentally or experientially. So Perkins, you know, Kevin mentioned this, Perkins says, preach one Christ by Christ to the praise of Christ. And they spoke of what's called discriminating or discriminatory application, which is a striking designation if you, you know, understand the history of those phrases. But but discriminating preaching or discriminatory preaching, Beeky says, defines the difference between the non-Christian and the Christian. Discriminatory preaching pronounces the wrath of God and eternal condemnation upon the unbelieving and impenitent. It likewise offers the forgiveness of sins and eternal life to all who embrace by true faith Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Such preaching teaches that if our religion is not experiential, we will perish, not because experience itself saves, but because Christ who saves sinners must be experienced personally as the rock upon whom our eternal hope is built. You see, we can't content ourselves with notional knowledge, but with what Owen called the sweet gust and relish of the knowledge of Christ. The Puritans were very aware of the deceitfulness of the human heart, and so they took pains to, to enumerate the marks of genuine saving faith from the marks of spurious faith. And you see that in uh, several, several books, like the Parable of the Ten Virgins by Thomas Shepard. Again, Matthew Meads, the almost Christian discovered. You, you know, here, here are, here's an example of what it's like to be an almost Christian, but not quite be there. And then Edwards, the religious affections where he gives these these tests, as you can see, you know, this is the way that counterfeit faith looks, and yet this is the way that genuine saving faith looks. How different, right, from today when those kinds of practices are decried as overly legalistic or overly pietistic, right? You know, I, I, I need to give my people assurance. I just need to because they've just been so beaten down and they need to believe. Yeah, yes, you do. The sheep need to be assured that they're sheep. Agreed. But there are goats among you, and they need to be convinced that they're not sheep because there's nothing worse than being inoculated against the remedy to the sickness, right? If I think I'm well, I'm not going to take myself to the doctor. If if you tell if you treat me as if I'm perfectly healthy, I'm not I'm going to be blind to my sickness and eventually succumb to it. This is not legalism, this is not pietism. This this is sound pastoral ministry that cares for people not to perish. And and, and instead of just saying, Oh yeah, just you know, Christ loves you, God loves you. Yes, those objective promises of the gospel in in chapter 18, section 1, that is the foundation and the primary means, and those promises are to be published to everyone, and yet there is this, but is it so with you? Do you see the fingerprints of grace inwardly pressed upon your life or no? And so... The, uh, you know, Beaky says how different this is from most contemporary preaching. Uh, most, a lot of times it's preached in a way that it's never going to transform anybody. It's reduced to a lecture catering to the wishes and needs of people or a form of experientialism removed from the foundation of Scripture. Preaching can be a lecture where it's the mind only. Or it can be a catering to the wishes and felt needs, which is volitional only. Or it could be an experientialism, which is affectional only. And the reality is, is we need them to be all three. The mind, into the heart, into the will, out through to the hands. Mind, heart, will, actions. All of them, and in that order. So therefore, there was the need to convict of sin, right? To refer to, 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 refer to the explicit past, or, uh, sins that someone was undergoing. List them. Be, be specific. And don't preach, don't preach to somebody else's congregation or to the sins of somebody on TV or something like that. Preach, preach about the sins that your congregation is struggling with. You don't call them out by name, but you, you know who they are, and you, and you cry down those specific sins, so that they would experience a specific conviction. We're at 2.55. I'm going to go over. Again, nobody will think you out of order if you needed to get up and and go five minutes from now, Uh, but I'll just continue until we go. I won't run into the next session, I promise. Um, Then, preaching is holistically evangelistic, and by that they simply meant that The Puritans preached the law and the gospel, that the law wounded the conscience and showed them the need for a savior and the gospel binded up the conscience and healed them with that sort of sweet and saving balm uh, of the promises of Christ. He says, the Puritans preached the precepts of the law before they offered the promises of the gospel. They spoke about the obligations that lie upon sinners before showing the way of deliverance through Christ. I like this. When God, when God is about to play the chord of grace in the soul, they taught, he usually starts with the bass note of the law. And so this is the idea that you can't, it's, it's R.C. Sproul's old book title, right? Saved from what, right? Tell us what it is that the, the word of God, what position the word of God says we're in and convict us of the need to be saved. You walk up to somebody and says, God loves you as a wonderful plan for your life. And they're like, okay, great. I know, right? I believe that. I love me too, <laughs> right? The law says God is angry with the wicked every day, that there's a standard that you violated in and in a, in a, in a punishment that you will be prescribed lest you escape. And here's Bunyan doing this, this kind of a thing. He's, he's speaking, uh, well, this is in Pilgrim's Progress, but this was in order to teach Christians, right? He says, if I look narrowly into the best of what I do now, I still see sin, new sin, mixing itself with the best of what I do, so that now I'm forced to conclude that notwithstanding my former fond conceits of myself and duties, I have committed sin enough in one duty to send me to hell, even if my former life had been faultless, unless I could obtain the righteousness of a man that had never sinned, neither mine own nor all the righteousness of the world could save me. See, that's, that's an illustration of how you ought to, you're trying to reason with a sinner who thinks, well, you know, I, I, I've been, you know, have done this duty, I've done this thing, I go to church, I read my Bible, I do. and he's trying to take away all the excuses of doings as the grounds of trust. And he says, no, it's, I've got to have a righteousness that's outside of me from somebody who's never sinned, and otherwise none of my righteousness would save me. That's the law being brought to bear and then a pushing unto the gospel of an external alien righteousness. And they were in good company uh, in preaching repentance, in gospel preaching. Somehow that's fallen out of favor, as if to say, well, repentance is law, but gospel is promise only. Well, John the Baptist came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came preaching the gospel, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Peter, is a- after his Pentecost sermon, is asked, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent. Paul says, now God is declaring to men that all people everywhere must repent, right? And then there was the new birth as well, the idea that, that preaching the Christian life is not merely behavior modification, but the, the recreation of the whole man, the total renovation of the soul, the, the new heart that gives new loves and new desires, do you, do you know somebody will, will will speak about you know you need to change your life, you need to do these sorts of things and you do? You do need to repent, that's right, but no amount of behavioral reformation makes you a Christian. Christianity is not doing all the things you hate and not doing all the things you love, right? That is a lost person with religion. Christianity is being given a new heart so that you love. What you ought to do, like we talked about yesterday, how grace makes duty a delight, and so you make false professors search their hearts and wonder: Is this really heart religion that I'm in here with, or am I just faking it? Am I just external? And then studiously symmetrical. They allowed they allowed scripture to dictate the emphasis for each message. Um, it wasn't they didn't have hobby horses. They went through. Uh, the scriptures consecutively through the, the issues uh, of theology. They, there was no, there was no uh, emphasis of the transcendence of God, of God to the expense of his imminence or vice versa. There, there, there was no overemphasis on the glories of heaven or, and not the, the horrors of hell or the horrors of hell to the exclusion of the glories of heaven. There was a well-roundedness. And uh, yeah, I'll move, on, I'll move on from that. Method of evangelism. Plain preaching addressed the mind with clarity, con- confronted the conscience pointedly, and wooed the heart passionately. And um, we'll go through those and then probably have to pack up. Um, Beeky says, Puritan evangelists labored to show sinners the, the unreasonableness of persisting in sin. And I really love this about their preaching and really aspire to it in my own. And this is just badness. It's silliness. They, they tore away every excuse for remaining unregenerate, whether it be an unbeliever's own inability and unwillingness or divine sovereignty and election. One of the, one of the great passages in Joseph Allen's book is where he, he deals with the excuse of somebody who says, well, what if I'm not elect? I mean, and I think every, everybody's heard at least somebody make that objection. You know what? You're preaching the gospel to me, but what if I'm not elect? And he says, you begin at the wrong end if you dispute about your election. Prove your conversion... And then never doubt your election. Whatever God's purposes be, which are secret, his promises are plain. How desperately, to re- do, do, how, how desperately do rebels argue if I am elected, I shall be saved, do what I will, if not, I shall be damned, do what I can. Perverse sinner, will you begin where you should end? Is not the word before you? What does it say? Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. If you mortify the deeds of the body, you will live, believe, and be saved. What can be plainer? Don't stand still disputing about your election, but set to repenting and believing. Cry to God for converting grace. Revealed things belong to you. In these, busy yourself. Excellent word. And then if it wasn't, well, what about sovereignty? Now that it was, I'm going to take away excuses for unwillingness. And so Venning says, he's just he's reasoning with him. Have you not souls as well as bodies? Would you not be saved from sin as well as from sickness? Hasten to Jesus Christ then, the physician, the savior of souls. Is there any other Christ? Is there salvation in any other? Has God any more sons to send? Is there any other way to heaven? Have we not been in peril long enough? Come now to Christ. If ever there was a there reason for it, there is now. Will you need him? You need him now. Will he be lovely hereafter? He is lovely now. These things being so, we should fly like doves to the windows and not stand a moment longer lest we die and die in our sins and then farewell to happiness and hope forever. But I trust that this is not vain. I'm willing to hope that I have not preached from nor prayed to God in vain, that I've not expostulated with and besought you in vain, but that you will yet repent and believe the gospel." I would just love to hear more preachers saying, I hope that you're hearing me. I hope that those of you who don't know Christ aren't sitting there looking at your phones or thinking about lunch, but that you're hearing me and that they would hear in your voice, in the preacher's voice, an earnestness that says, what, what could be the matter with you that you don't see what's right before you? And so Flavel reasons further, if God be your enemy, you have an immortal enemy who lives forever to avenge himself upon his adversaries. Alas, where will you turn? To whom will you complain? What will you do when you shall stand at the bar and see that God who is your enemy upon the throne? And then Bunyan, in A Few Sighs From Hell, says, O oh, sinner, sinner, there are better things than hell to be had and at a cheaper rate by the thousandth part oh, there is no comparison. There is heaven. There is God. There is Christ. There is communion with an innumerable company of saints and angels. Hear the message then that God sends, that Christ sends, that saints bring. And then they confronted the conscience pointedly. They named specific sins and asks specific questions to press home the guilt of those sins, and they did it urgently, directly, and specifically. Flavel says, "'It is indeed infinite mercy that God has come so near to you to dwell in your flesh, and that he has fixed upon such an excellent method to save poor sinners.'" In other words, Christ became man. "'And has he done all this? Is he indeed come home even to your own doors to seek peace?' Does he, does he veil his unsupportable glory under flesh that he might treat you the more familiarly? And yet do you refuse him and shut your hearts against him? Well, then hear one word and let your ears tingle at the sound of it. Your sin is hereby aggravated beyond the sin of devils who never sinned against a mediator in their own nature, who never despised or refused because indeed they were never offered terms of mercy as you are and i doubt not but the devils themselves who now tempt you to reject christ will to all eternity upbraid your folly for rejecting this great salvation which in this excellent way is brought down even to your own doors he says christ became one of you he became a man he didn't become an angel and therefore the angels the fallen angels have no mediator don't commit a sin elsewhere he'll say don't commit a sin worse than devils he's confronting the conscience Then they wooed the heart passionately. Beeky says it is unusual today to find a ministry which both feeds the mind with solid biblical substance and moves the heart with affectionate warmth. But this combination was commonplace with the Puritans. They didn't just reason with the mind and confront the conscience. They applied it or appealed to the heart. They set forth Christ in his loveliness, hoping to make the unsaved jealous of what the believer has in Christ. We need more preaching like that. Now, I found out that Octavius Winslow lived later on than I thought he did, but Reformation Heritage was selling his book, The, the Glory of the Redeemer, and, uh, and so therefore I say he's a Puritan. Um, <laughs> but this is great. He says, this, this happiness is the attainment the world is eagerly in search of, but the believer in Christ is its only possessor. He has found it and found it in Jesus. He has found it in a renunciation of self-righteousness and in a humble reception of Christ. And there is no happiness worthy of the name that is sought and found outside of Jesus. What true happiness can the heart feel while it's unrenewed, its sins unpardoned, the soul unjustified, and therefore under condemnation and exposed to the wrath of the holy and just God? Oh, dream not of happiness, reader, until you have gone as a repenting sinner to the cross of Christ, until the atoning blood has been applied to your conscience and the Spirit bears His witness to your adoption. You want happiness, world? It's only in Christ. You want peace, joy? It's only in Jesus. You can have all of these blessings, but they're all stored up in Him. And so you have to have an interest in Him. You have to be united to Him. And then you can have what you so earnestly seek for, You're thirsty. Jesus says, come to me. The fountain of living waters, the one who drinks of me, will never be thirsty again. You're hungry. Jesus says, come to me. I'm the bread of life. You eat me. You'll be satisfied unto all eternity. You see, that kind of wooing, is we're in short supply of it. And the Puritans teach us to not lack it. And you think, well, are you just sort of bribing the unbeliever? No, man is created in the image of God to want these things. They they seek for them in the wrong ways, in the wrong places. That's what depravity is, not the desire for happiness, but the, the, the seeking of happiness in sinful means. The desire of happiness is the desire for God. And God says, come and feast the appetites of your soul on me. Let's hold him out that way to sinners. And then I read this. Um, I read this yesterday, but who wasn't here yesterday? Oh, good. We're going to read it again. So (laughs) Rutherford says, If there were 10,000,000 millions of worlds, and as many heavens full of men and angels, Christ would not be pinched to supply all our wants and to fill us all. Christ is a well of life, but who knows how deep it is to the bottom? This soul of ours has love and cannot but love some fair one. And oh, what a fair one. What an only one. What an excellent, lovely, ravishing one is Jesus. Put the beauty of ten thousand, thousand worlds of paradises like the Garden of Eden in one. Put all trees, all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetnesses, all loveliness in one. Oh, what a fair and excellent thing would that be. And yet it would be less to that fair and dearest, well-beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. Oh, but Christ is heaven's wonder and earth's wonder. So it's, And you got the believer, unbeliever in the congregation going, I'd love to feel about anything the way that he feels about that one. <laughs> right? And then, and then... He turns it. This is what we didn't read yesterday. He says, oh, if I could persuade thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 of Adam's sons to flock about my Lord Jesus and to come and take their fill of love, oh, pity forevermore that there should be such a one as Christ Jesus, so boundless, so bottomless, and so incomparable in infinite excellency and sweetness, and yet so few to take him, oh, Oh, you poor, dry, and dead souls. Why won't you come here with your empty vessels and your empty souls to this huge and fair and deep and sweet well of life and fill all your empty vessels? Oh, that Christ should be so large in sweetness and worth and we so narrow, so pinched, so ebb, and so void of all happiness. And yet men will not take him. They lose their love miserably. Who will not bestow it upon this lovely one? mind, conscience, heart, and then one thought is that in the in under this heading of catechetical evangelism, that those kinds of of statements weren't only again as I said before in preaching, but that were house to house. Baxter says, Let them that have taken most pains in public examine their people and try whether many of them are not nearly as ignorant and careless as if they had never heard the gospel. Baxter says, For my part, I I study to speak as plainly and as movingly as I can, and yet I frequently meet with those in my congregation that have been my hearers eight or ten years who know not whether Christ be God or man and wonder when I tell them the history of his birth and life and death as if they'd never heard it before. I've found by experience that some ignorant persons who have been so long unprofitable hearers have gotten more knowledge and remorse of conscience in a half hour's close disclosure than they did from ten years of public preaching. I know that preaching the gospel publicly is the most excellent means because we speak to many at once, but it is usually far more effectual to preach it privately to a particular sinner. And so what's what's that mean? Pastors, visit your people and engage them in the state of their soul. People, members Welcome that kind of self that kind of examination from your overseers. Don't be standoffish, and I don't want a pastor to know about this, right? Because there are going to be things that you hear in a sermon that your conscience, your sinful heart, will go, "Here comes, here comes," you know, conviction, and you go, "Right, you, you, no, that's for him, right?" You know, what I mean, you, you. you sin makes provision for itself and it, it's got a self-preservation mechanism and you can hear the most moving preaching and think, ah, I hope my husband's listening, you know, <laughs> right? Rather than, no, let me make heart work of this for me. And when a pastor who's worth his salt is in front of you and saying, so how is it with you? What, what, do you obey this? What, what objections does your flesh rise up and give to following in this path of obedience? What have you done to put down those objections and to, to reason with yourself and to mortify that sin? What do you spend your time on? What about the harshness of your language? What about the... I mean, I mean there's just so many applications. Don't be offended by that. It, 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 your pastor doesn't want to offend you. Your pastor doesn't want to have those difficult conversations with you. It's hard enough to do that. It's, it's easier when we know that it's welcomed with a wise desi- desire for correction. So uh, that is just the, the point of application under catechetical evangelism that I think of. And then Puritan evangelism, the, the men themselves were uh, dependent upon the Spirit and, and men of prayer. I, I don't really have too much time to uh, do that, but I'll, I'll sit with, uh, with Baxter and Owen. He says uh, Baxter says, he preaches not heartily to his people that prays not earnestly for them. And Owen says... No man preaches that sermon well that does not first preach it to his own heart. And if the word does not dwell with power in us, it will not pass with power from us. And that's an, an exhortation to be so full of Christ that when when, something, when we open our mouths, we, we bleed biblene when we're, when we're pierced like, like Bunyan was, right? The word must dwell with power in us, otherwise it won't pass with power from us. All right, we're over time, so I'll dismiss you. Thank you.